0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Glenn Patrick of Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxford will talk about how it's possible to probe the hidden universe and what particle physics can tell us about its secrets. Okay, it's nice to be back at Bath. Can I, before I start, just ask how many people were here at my last lecture in October, just to get a rough idea? Okay, not so many. Okay, okay. Well, this, this, um, the last time I actually talked about the building of the Large Hadron Collider and how we deal with all the information and data that comes from it. So I'm not going to talk too much about that today. I'm going to somehow try and inspire you towards the science and the motivation for the LHC. So, hence the title, the Hidden Universe. Now, my first slide actually shows uh, perhaps not what you're expecting. Uh, I'm starting actually with the visible spectrum. This is the thing that we see with our own eyes. I got from Oxford to Bath today, navigating using my eyes, as shown here. It's a wonderful detector of electromagnetic radiation. And I think it's something like a few hundred megapixels, if you want to put it in terms of a digital camera. And, of course, we're only sensitive to a very narrow range of wavelengths, 400 billionth of a metre to 700 billionth of a metre. And that's what we call the optical spectrum. And that's what we can see. That's what's visible. Now, sometimes we need a little bit of a help, and it so turns, turns out that this year is the, the International Year of Astronomy. And one of the things that celebrates is the fact that Galileo, shown here, did quite a few wonderful things around that time. He used telescopes, and here's one of his original telescopes. If you go to Florence, you can see this. And he, he, he wasn't the first person to build a telescope, but he, he was very keen on developing them and using them. And he did a few things. He discovered four of Jupiter's moons, optically. He observed Saturn's rings. And also, with another, a few other people, notably an English gentleman here called Thomas Harriot, he looked at the topography of the moon. Now, he would look through this telescope and he'd have to draw the things. He had no means of taking a picture. And this is one of his first pictures of the moon. So he'd look through the telescope and draw this. And Galileo did actually die blind. I'm told it's nothing to do with looking through these telescopes. He did actually suffer from glaucoma and uh, cataracts. So Galileo uh, started looking at the universe, if you like, using the optical wavelength. If we move on... This is the state-of-the-art now, or roughly uh, now. This is a, a modern-day telescope. This is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. This is in, somewhere in New Mexico. What this does is it scans the, a portion of the sky <coughs> in the northern hemisphere and maps out everything it can see optically. It can do other wavelengths as well. And the map you see here is one of those maps. And each dot on here represents a galaxy. We were told by astronomers that each galaxy contains 100 billion stars, and the universe is supposed to contain 100 billion galaxies. So somewhere out there, there was something like 10 billion trillion stars. Sounds like a national debt or something, doesn't it? These mind-blowing numbers that nobody really understands. <coughs> but you only have to look at this. You know this is, this is absolutely inspiring to think that we can see two billion light-years deep into space and map this sort of structure. And cosmologists spend a lot of time trying to understand this structure. If you stare at it long enough, you see sort of strands and threads. There's something called the Great Sloan Wall. I've no idea which one it is. Maybe there. <coughs> so that's what you can do now, optically. You can do other things as well. The Hubble Space Scope is up there somewhere in space. Here's a picture of it now. And it's got a series of telescopes through the Hubble. And it can look in a very narrow range, straight out into space for a long time. And this picture here represents the deepest image of the universe taken in visible light. And this goes back 13 billion light years. So the things near to you, the bright things, are things that are close by. The very faint things are approximately 13 billion light years away. Okay. so again, stunning what you can do with visible light. So that's just a a cartoon, if you like, of showing what it's doing. It's looking back in time... And this is the sort of range it can get to. It can't get, much, can't get the last bit right to the Big Bang. Now, of course, that's one viewpoint, the optical viewpoint, using the same wavelengths that I use with my eyes. There are other views that you can take. And over the 20th century, there are maps of the universe in the radio spectrum, in what else we got here? Infrared, mid-infrared, optical again, X-ray and gamma-ray. And these all reveal... Lots more information. For instance, that's the view of the universe with gamma rays. Gamma rays are like intense light rays, if you like, with a very short wavelength. It's something we can't see. <coughs> and you can learn a lot about this, because you notice there are pulsars here, and all these gamma rays seem to be coming from pulsars. And here's the Milky Way, and you can see it's very active in gamma rays. So it's something we'd never know about unless we looked in that wavelength. Similarly, This is probably perhaps the most important view of the universe, not the optical one. This is a map of the universe taken in microwaves. And this, again, is taken by a satellite sitting out in space. It's the WMAP satellite. And they've done a very clever thing. They've mapped the thermal background radiation left over from the Big Bang, the so-called cosmic microwave background. There was a temperature, space is at around just two degrees up above absolute zero, but there are minor fluctuations, and this shows all those fluctuations. You can see the scale is in um, microcalves, millionths of a degree. So these tiny fluctuations. And the idea is that this is somehow measuring the fluctuations left over from the Big Bang. Why? Because at the Big Bang, you had quantum fluctuations right near to the Big Bang. And at a certain point, the universe became transparent to optical light, at least. And these fluctuations got frozen in. So even though we look now, 14 billion years later, these fluctuations still tell us something about the universe. And one of the most important things they actually do tell us is that from these measurements, you can calculate how much matter there is in the universe. If you look at this graphic here, you'll see atoms 4.6%. So the normal stuff that matter is made up of is only 4.6% of the universe. The rest is something called dark matter. That means things we can't actually see or detect, but we know they're there by their gravitational force. There's a very strange thing called dark energy. Okay? So you look at the energy in the universe, only around 4.6% is due to atoms. So that's a mind-blowing thing to begin with. Now, of course, you can look out into space, but you can also look in the other direction. You can't start trying to look into matter. So instead of using telescopes, you can use microscopes. And again, this shows you the idea. Now, in particle physics, you, you'll have to, this comes from quantum mechanics, but particles can behave like waves. And as you increase the energy of a particle, you actually shorten its wavelength. This is called the de Broglie relationship. It comes from quantum mechanics. You don't need to worry about that, but just accept that as you increase the energy, you shorten the wavelength of the incident particle. So it gets smaller and smaller, and can probe deeper and deeper into matter. And that's basically what this is showing. We could obviously probe this building with a fairly large wave. A big wave could fit in here, but that's not true as you go down through cells and atoms and molecules, uh, and certainly through nuclei. You have to have a n- smaller and smaller wavelength to look deep inside. Okay. So the first, likewise, while Galileo was building his telescope, Robert Hooke, a very famous. British physicist, was building microscopes. And he built the first compound microscope. And if you go up to Glasgow, I think it's the Hunterian Museum, is it in Glasgow? Uh, you'll find this. And this had a similar magnification. Now, um, Hooke was one of the first people to start looking at things scientifically. And he actually was the first person to use the word cell. I don't think he actually quite meant a biological cell like we, we mean today, but he coined the word, the word cell comes from, from his, his writings. And he was very fond of investigating things. He wrote a whole book, Micrographia, here. And I don't know you, as well as a good scientist, he was a pretty good artist as well. Because he used this to look at all sorts of living things. And here's some flea that he sketched. He's got a book all full of this. <clears throat> so that was the beginnings of, if you like, optical microscopy. Now, of course, that developed through the centuries. And things again changed when people realized they could use different wavelengths. And one thing that changed uh, life in, in science was the discovery of X-rays. And these were discovered by Röntgen in 1895. Now, Röntgen, uh, there's not, he didn't publish too many papers. And he published three or four papers, I think. But he was very fond of giving demonstrations. One of the first demonstrations he did was to um, X-ray the hand of his wife here. He thought there was no risk, and he'd taken all the right precautions. And that's an X-ray of his wife. He was even braver because he went to some fancy uh, entertainment evening somewhere, and there was a famous anatomist there. He invited him to come, and he'd take an X-ray of his hand. You can even see the ring on his hand here. So that happened about the following year. And this was the very first Nobel Prize in physics in 1901. The very first Nobel Prize was for the discovery of X-rays. Now, going onwards, the first fundamental particle, uh, from looking into matter, uh, was the electron. And here we see J.J. Thompson in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. And he used a device called a cathode ray tube. It's just like a television tube, or the old-fashioned television, not the flat-screen ones we've got now, but the old-fashioned uh, big bulky TVs. And he had a cathode, which emitted electrons, and he could bend them and deflect them with the electric field. And he could even use magnetic fields if he wanted to bend them. From this, he decided that the electron was a charged particle and had a a negative charge. And this is attributed to uh, the the first discovery of the electron, like I say, in 1897. Now, through this lecture, I'll I'll use the word electron volt quite a lot. Uh, Just so that you don't get too confused, physicists have a nasty habit of using electron volts to measure mass and energy. And all an electron volt is, is accelerating an electron through a potential difference of one volt. Now, these typically, I think, are a few hundred volts. So this will be a few hundred electron volts in terms of energy. OK? Now, if you really want to think in terms of mass, we can do the conversion. Remember, mass is energy, and energy is mass, according to Einstein. You can do the conversion. You get some very small number of kilograms. But I will liberally use the word electron volt. So that was the first fundamental particle or so we thought. Things progressed um, around 1908 because Rutherford was at Manchester, at the University of Manchester, and together with Geiger and Marsden I did a series of experiments in, in one of the laboratories there using alpha particles. And what they did was they had a source of alpha particles and they scattered them off a thin foil of metal. Gold, typically, could be used. And then they looked to see where these alpha particles got scattered to. Now, at that time, the picture of the atom, if there was an atom, was something like this. It was just a load of positive and negative charges. And they expected these alpha particles to just sort of get deviated and go straight through. So it's quite powerful compared to, to what's in here. To their surprise, they actually found some of them bounced back. And this was the discovery of the nucleus. Okay. Rutherford interpreted the data. Although Gagarin-Marsden did most of the donkey work, Rutherford being the great man interpreted uh, the the data and came up with the idea that this was due to the nucleus and I'm not going to go through the whole of the 20th century of particle physics but it's worth noting that in 1919 Rutherford then went on to discover the proton He he continued a series of experiments he went to the Cavendish lab from Manchester and Chadwick, another British physicist, discovered the neutron in 1932, again at the Cavendish and subsequently at Liverpool University so this was the start in the sense of particle physics, if you like. So the structure of matter in 1932 looked something like that. You have an atom, you have a nucleus in the middle, you have electrons orbiting it, and um, the nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. Now, people didn't give up on Rutherford scattering. strange as it may seem. You might have thought it was all discovered. In 1969, a new series of experiments were done. This was on a totally different scale. You saw Rutherford's little laboratory. This is the Stanford linear accelerator, which is two miles long. And this accelerates electrons along this accelerator to many, many orders of magnitude higher energy than Rutherford could use. And here, they're dumped into a target, a metal target, and then you'll look to see how far the electrons are scattered. And this is the equivalent of Rutherford's apparatus. You see these rails. The whole spectrometer could be moved around. So just like Rutherford, they could measure the scatterings of the electrons off the target. And again, surprise, surprise, they discovered some structure. Things bounced back instead of going straight through. And this was the discovery of quarks. Okay. So here we have a picture of an electron coming in, hitting a proton, and being bounced back. And the reason it's bounced back, because inside the proton the three further particles. So the proton is made up of two up quarks and a down quark. Don't worry too much about the names, but they're different sorts of quark. <coughs> now, it still hasn't stopped there because through the 20th century, up until 2007, experiments were t- still being done to discover the structure of the proton. This is the Hera uh, Electron-Proton Collider in Hamburg. It shut down in 2007. This is 6.3 kilometre colliding detector. Protons go through this Sorry, Protons go through here. This is a superconducting ring of magnets. And electrons or positrons go through this red series of magnets. And they're collided. Now this is much more economic because the, the accelerator is circular so you can keep them going round and round. If it's a straight accelerator you can accelerate them and just lose the particles at the end. You can't recover them. So you can keep colliding particles. And this showed that actually the proton, although it's made up of what are called three valence quarks, it's actually much more complicated. Inside, all, there's like a sea of virtual particles, and they're all swimming around inside the proton. So a lot of work has been done just to, just to understand how the proton is made up. So at the simplistic level, we'd say, say it's made up of three quarks, but it is a bit more complicated than that. So the structure of matter around 1969, and, and in fact now more or less, is this. We've got the atom, the nucleus. The nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. Those in turn are made up of quarks. And we have the electron. Now the thing to understand is that the electron and the quark are what are called point-like particles. They cannot be broken up. They're fundamental particles. The proton is not a fundamental particle because you can break it up. Okay. <clears throat> and look at the size of them by the very definition. They're very small. And we regard them as point-like. No structure has been detected. <clears throat> now, okay, uh, I spent a lot of time in the 90s working on this machine. This is called the Large Electron-Positron Collider, or LEP. This is 27 kilometers in circumference. It's underneath Geneva. is Geneva Airport. And it's a ring of 3,000 bending magnets, 800 focusing magnets, and this accelerated electrons in one direction and protons in the, uh, and positrons in the other. Now, these are both point-like particles. A positron is just the antimatter equivalent of the electron. Okay? So what we're trying to do is here's a picture of the accelerator inside. Now, this is the same tunnel that's used for the Large Hadron Collider. So this is the previous incarnation of what was in, in that tunnel. And what we're trying to do here is to scatter point-like particles, a point-like electron, with its antimatter equivalent, the positron. Okay? And again, if we invoke Mr. Einstein here, E equals mc squared, you can create a lot of energy and create new particles. And here's some pictures from the accelerator. Now, it's worth looking at these in a little bit of detail, because look how sim- simple they are. I-, I, use- I can use these to teach school children particle physics. So what you've had here is an electron and a positron collide. They've created an intermediate particle, called a Z0. Don't worry about what that is. And that, in turn, is decayed. And in here, it's decayed to an electron and a positron. Look how clean this picture is. Here it's decayed to in a heavier version of electron, called a muon and an anti-muon. Now here it's decayed into what we call into some form of quarks. Now, quarks can't exist on their own. They tend to fragment. So these are called quark jets. And This has even got a, a three-jet structure. But look how pretty and simple these are. And that's because we're colliding point-like particles. Now, um, in particle physics, we have this thing called the standard model. And this is a picture of the standard model. So all of matter is understood in terms of this model. There's a bit more to it than this, but this is is sort of a pictorial form. So in terms of what makes up the world, we have up quarks, down quarks, and electrons. They make up all the matter on Earth. So this table... If you probe deeply enough, it's made up of up quarks, down quarks, electron quarks. turns out that in accelerators, and in the Big Bang, in fact, you can make heavier versions or, or different types of these particles. So it's not just up and down quarks. There's charm and strange quarks, truth and beauty, or top and bottom. And the same, the electron, instead of just on the electron, there's heavier versions. There's a muon and a tau lepton. These are all fundamental particles. These at the bottom are called neutrinos. I won't talk too much about neutrinos today. (coughs) And alongside the particles, there's another set. uh, Alongside the matter particles, there's a set of force particles. So these are the particles. This is the Z boson, the photon, the W boson, and something called the gluon. Now, these are responsible for the different forces we see in the world. So that's the standard model as it exists today. And it explains an awful lot. Almost all particle physics data, and this has been done in immense detail, is explained by the standard model. So, large hadron collider. Moving forward, this is a picture of the LHC. Uh, this is the machine. It's in the same tunnel as LEP. Now, this will collide protons on protons. Now, remember, protons are not fundamental. So, these are not going to be clean events. They're going to be very complicated interactions. And this will be the highest energy accelerator in the world once it, once it operates. 27 kilometres in circumference. 8,000 cryomagnets. What that means is it's superconducting to reduce the power consumption. And so that means that 40,000 tonnes of metal around this ring have to be cooled to minus 271 degrees centigrade, just above absolute zero. <coughs> and this will have bunches of protons going around in both directions, and there's whatever that is, 10 to 11 protons in each bunch. So billions of protons going around in both directions and they interact at certain points in the ring. 40 megahertz is the crossing rate. So you get this enormous number of proton-proton collisions every second. So it's going to produce huge amounts of data, which was the subject of my last talk. How it works, I'll show this, because this is... If I can get it to work. This gives you a very quick idea of what happens. The LHC isn't one accelerator, it's a series. And what you see here is the protons being accelerated through different accelerators before it gets anywhere near the LHC. And when you've got enough of them, you inject them into the Large Hadron Collider. Remember, you have to do that in both directions. And again, you accelerate them up to the full energy. And at certain points, you collide them. And if you built an, ex- an experiment around that point, you can detect what happens. Okay. So, in a nutshell, that's what the LHC does. OK, so as I've already explained, uh, protons are messy things, right? They're full of quarks and other things. And when you interact with them, you get complicated pictures. Now, look how this is an interaction between two protons. Now, look how messy that is compared to the ones I showed you from LEP earlier when you're just using electrons and positrons. And that's because it's full of quarks that are interacting. And not only that, the LHC is a fierce machine. It's operating at such a rate, you get lots and lots of vents and interactions happening at the same time, and they get overlaid. So it's going to be rather difficult to understand some of these things, I think. Now, how do you look at these interactions? Well, you build very large detectors. There are two general-purpose detectors. This is the ATLAS experiment. This weighs 7,000 tonnes, by the way. Here's the picture of a person down here. Huge things, right? And the beams come in and interact, one proton will come that way, one proton will come that way, and they interact. And you build this concentric shell of subdetectors all around the interaction point to try and detect what's happening. That's the challenge. Here's another experiment. This is a CMS experiment. I briefly worked on this experiment. Uh, this, again, is a general-purpose detector. Again, you'll see the beam pipe coming in, and you see these concentric layers of detectors. Here's another view to give you an idea of its size. Again, the sort of British Standard man is down here, and this has been split apart. You see, there's end cap, there's a barrel sort of region, and there's end caps. So what you want to do is strain the interaction so you can detect everything that's happening there. Because if you miss something, it might be the thing that you're looking for. That's a real picture of the barrel part of CMS. Um, It's in an underground cavern, 100 metres underground. The accelerator is underground. And you can see these concentric layers. The beam will go in that way, and there'll be a beam coming in the other direction. Around here, you see these different layers of detectors. To give you an idea, that's, those are the different layers. In the middle, you have something called a tracker, which actually tracks particles, surprisingly enough. Then you have things called calorimeters. This is the return yoke of the magnet, this is all in a magnetic field. And right around the outside, you have muon detectors. And the reason you put those right on the outside is because muons are weakly interacting. And they're the only thing... Well, there's a few other things that can get all the way through. So building these layers, you can tell the sorts of particle you, you, that you're looking at. So look at that. Again, you see, in the middle is the tracker, calorimeters, solenoid, and is the muon chambers around here. The red bit is the, uh, the yoke of, of the magnet. And we don't actually see particles, although it's called particle physics. I've never seen a particle. What you actually do is to detect them. You reveal them. And here's a slice through that um, cross-section of CMS. If you just take a slice like this, and here's the interaction point, here's the particles going through. So charged particles you can detect in this tracking device. Then you have things called calorimeters that can detect other sorts of particles, neutral particles, photons, electrons... And then through here, you, have, you can detect muons. You can see up here, there's different paths. So there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic idea. Now, I'll just discuss two sorts of detectors, just so you've got a quick idea. One way of detecting a particle is through ionisation. Okay? The idea here is you have a, an ion, a particle, a charged particle, going through, let's say, a gas. It hits uh, an atom in the gas, and it knocks out an electron. So you end up with a negative ion, an electron, and a positive ion. Okay? So that's what this is showing. A charged particle coming in, knocking out the electron. And this is a bit like the contrail, where you see the path, you know vapour trail, where you see the path of a plane in the sky. You don't necessarily see the plane, but afterwards you see the vapour trail. So you have this trail of ionisation. And if you're very clever, you can collect this trail of ionisation using electrodes. And here we see what would have been called a wire chamber at one time. So if you put a negative charge on here and a positive charge on here, you can collect the positive ions from the ionisation and the negative ions. And if you have enough wires, look how many wires there are here, you can actually detect the path of the particle. So at one time, these would have been the sort of thing you saw in a particle physics experiment. You don't see so many of them now. And the reason is because we tend to use semiconductor devices. You can do the same thing with silicon. So a particle going through silicon will... Re- re- will release charge carriers, depending on the sort of semiconductor it is, and you can collect these charge carriers going through the silicon. And the beauty of silicon is you can segment it and make it very fine. Okay? So in experiments, what you now see are silicon trackers instead of wire chambers. And these are all bits of silicon layered around this concentric circle. That's the CMS tracker. Atlas have one like that. Okay? So those are trackers which detect charged particles. Another way of detecting particles is just to destroy them and see, look at their properties. Here's a picture of an electron going into lead. And one, this is the energy. And this is lead, iron, aluminium. And depending on your choice of material, you can stop the electron because it produces all these interactions. And again, it's a very clever. You can stop the electron and collect all that energy. You can tell that it was an electron. You can measure its energy. And this is a device of, of detector called calorimeters. Now, not like the calorimeters that measure heat, although in a sense they measure energy, of course. These measure the sort of total energy of particles. And one way of doing that, this is a, these are um, lead tungstenate crystals. And the CMS has almost eighty thousand of these, and these all point at the interaction point, and they can measure the energies of electrons and photons. You can do the same thing with lead glass. You know lead crystal that you drink out of? You can make detectors out of lead crystal. Because lead crystal has some very good properties. It's very dense because there's a lot of lead in it. But it's also transparent and has a high refractive index. And if you put these photo detectors on the end, you can detect the particles. So these are sort of all being installed there. And then they're all being put probably behind these plates in there. That's the calorimeter. It's one of the end-cut calorimeters. Okay, so that's a brief discussion of the experiment. So what's the LHC supposed to do? Okay, what's its aim? Now, like I said, in particle physics, we have this thing called the standard model. We've got these generations of particles, and these all seem to be fundamental particles. We think we understand the forces, but there are a few problems with it. First of all, although it's a model or a theory, it requires 18 input parameters to be put in by hand, by measurement. Things like the electron mass. It knows nothing about the electron mass. Things like coupling constants say particles interact with one another. There are at least 18 of these, perhaps, and a few others, that have to go in. And that's never satisfactory for a theory. You should be able to calculate it from within the theory, or should predict them. (coughs) Gravity is not included. In all the time I've spent in particle physics, I've never actually looked at gravity. Um, The reason is because it's the weakest force. And it doesn't influence the interactions that we see in particle physics so far. Why are there these three generations of particles? Why don't you just have this one copy that we see in the everyday world? Why are there these three generations? That's not understood. Why aren't there four? Why aren't there five? Why isn't there one? Are these particles truly fundamental? We think they are. We can't see any structure. What is mass? This would be something to do with the Higgs particle, which is shown here. Where's the missing antimatter in the universe? This doesn't really explain it. You can include the antiparticles in the standard model, that's fine, there's no problem with that. But it doesn't explain why we don't see any antimatter in the universe. And what's all this stuff about dark energy, dark matter? It says nothing about that. The standard model actually is already broken because the standard model actually assumes that these neutrinos are massless. And it's recently discovered in about the last 10 years that they have a very tiny mass. So we already know it's sort of broken. And also, if you use this model uh, to do some calculations about the universe, you get an answer that's 10 to 120 too large, huge factor wrong. Okay, there's reasons for that. Now, looking at the LHC, one thing, probably the most important thing in particle physics, is forces rather than particles. A classical physicist would define forces as something like this: it's moving charges and fields. We've all done experiments with iron filings and sort of played around with magnets, and this is what we think of as a field. Talk to a cosmologist. He thinks of forces on a much larger scale. He'd talk about the pressure of the universe, whether it's accelerating. There's this latest thing about dark energy causing accelerated expansion. He'd be much more concerned with the large-scale structure of the universe. Particle physicists, though, these are the forces. They're quantum forces. And in nature... When we talk about the electromagnetic force, although we can play with magnets and motors, at the fundamental level, this is what's happening. Here, a photon is being exchanged between two particles. And it is the photon, this exchange particle, that is responsible for the force. So this continuous exchange of photons that is generating electromagnetic interaction. So if I cut this computer down, eventually that would be what was going on. Because we think in terms of current and everything else, but if we actually probe deep enough. So the force carrier for the electromagnetic force is the photon. The force carrier for the weak force, this is the force responsible for radioactivity, is the W boson and Z boson, shown here. Now these are heavy. okay, And it turns out the range of the force is proportional to 1 over the mass of the particle. So you've got a photon which is massless, so the range of the electromagnetic force is infinite. We know it gets weaker, but we know using radio or mobile phones you can communicate with people over vast distances. It just gets weaker and weaker. But radioactivity is really a short-range force, and that's why these exchange particles are heavy. Strong interaction is a little bit different. I won't go into that, but the exchange particle there is a gluon. The gluons have special properties, and I don't have time to discuss those. So there are three forces, but there's a fourth force. What about gravity? It doesn't appear. (coughs) Now, another thing to realise is that space is not empty. The classical vacuum, if you think classically, is just an empty space. You take all the matter out and there's nothing left. We've all got this idea of a vacuum pump and you end up with nothing. But in reality, there's no such thing. If you go to enter space and you took all the stars and all the atoms out, you'd still be left with something. And that's because you can have virtual particles. Particles, just like in the proton I mentioned earlier, you have this sea of particles. You have these virtual particles being created and annihilated all the time. And this is allowed because it happens very quickly. But there's enough of them in the universe, of course, that you can add up all this energy, and this is the thing that we actually get wrong by an order of magnitude, 120 orders and a magnitude wrong. Okay, Because dark energy, the thing that's been observed, has been measured. And there's a There's a measurement down here. There's this thing called the cosmological constant. It's the thing that Einstein put in to his equations to keep the the universe steady in the days when we had the steady state theorem. Now, of course, it's put in more to try and explain uh, what's happening to things like dark matter. So this thing is the cosmological constant. And it's actually quite small. I mean, that's that's just telling us that there's 74% of dark energy. (coughs) But we get the answer wrong by this huge factor. So it should be something cancelling this out. Because all we want is a little bit of energy left over to explain the, the dark energy. So there's a question there, what is dark energy? And I, I don't have any answers, I'm afraid. Now, so what will the LHC discover? Well, one of the big things that we'll look at is this thing of mass. That it came as a bit of a shock to me, to be honest, that I'd spent all these years doing physics and didn't understand something as simple as mass. But apparently I don't. And the reason for all that is because if you look at a proton... The mass of a proton is mainly made up of its constituents. These quarks are moving around, and there's a binding energy. So the mass of the proton is mainly made up from the motion of the constituents. Okay? But for fundamental particles, like the quarks or the electrons, it's been a mystery how they actually acquire their mass. Why is it a mystery? Well, if you look at the particles, the W boson is supposed to be a fundamental particle. It has a mass of 80 billion electron volts. You look at an electron, supposed to be a fundamental particle, has a mass of 511 electron volts. The neutrino has a mass of less than two electron volts. The photon is supposed to have no mass. Why? What's happening here? Enter Professor Higgs from Edinburgh. It's a picture of him on his visit to CERN. It's, although it's called the Higgs boson, there were a few other people involved. Now I've put all the papers here. So Higgs, Englert and Brout, Kibble, a few people from Imperial College here. There's been several people, and they all published in 1964 some papers trying to explain this mystery of mass. And the idea is shown up here. If you're a classical physicist, you'd think of a Higgs field like this. What's happening is a particle, let's say it's an electron or a quark, is moving through this field, and by the resistance of moving through this field, it's acquiring mass. Now, of course, I've already told you that we shouldn't really think like this. This is the quantum approach. There are lots of Higgs bosons. The Higgs boson is the quantum of the Higgs field, just like the photon is the quantum of the electromagnetic field. So the Higgs boson is interacting with all these quanta, and that is what is generating mass. It's like all the other forces. (coughs) Now, I've got a demonstration here, if it works. Remember, if it's physics, it doesn't work. Now, I've got a plastic pen top here, and if you just watch how quickly it goes through this copper tube... Right, goes straight through. I've already lost it. I've got a backup. I've got some a piece of wood. Goes through very quickly. I've got a magnet. Now, according to Galileo, whoever did all these experiments, these should drop at the same rate anyway. How okay, long it took. I'll do it again. And this is an analogy for the Higgs boson. And the reason it's taken a long time is because this is a magnet, this is copper. It's generating a current in the copper as it goes through, and it's generating eddy currents. It's interacting, inside here it's not a vacuum, it's interacting with this field, if you like. This isn't interacting with the field, it's made of wood, it knows nothing about magnetism. So that is exactly analogous to the Higgs field, if you like. (coughs) And, okay, this is a bit of a complication... But the Higgs field actually pervades all of the universe. That's the first thing to know. And there's a funny sort of shape to it. Most fields, at, uh, at their zero, when they're at zero field, they have zero energy. But the Higgs field has this funny Mexican hat shape. It turns out that the Higgs field is non-zero in its sort of vacuum state, okay? which is what you want. You actually want the vacuum to have this sort of non-zero thing, so you can interact with it and give these masses... So this is another field that's out there in outer space somewhere, supposedly. We haven't discovered it yet. Now, searching for it. So how will we find it? It turns out that an awful lot of work has been done already on looking for the Higgs boson. The previous accelerator I worked on, it was looked for, and we can actually... (laughs) One of the problems is that the theory does not actually tell us, predict the Higgs mass, which is pretty useless for the theory, in a sense. It can be almost anywhere. But over the years, it's been cut down to a fairly narrow window. We know it has to be above a certain energy, otherwise we would have seen it at LEP. And we're starting to see effects from, from the Higgs boson. So we think we're very close. Hence the excitement for the LHC. And these are different pictures. The Higgs will decay into different particles if you create it. Here it's decaying into four leptons. That's like four electrons. No, this is four muons, sorry. One, two, three, four. It's decayed into two photons, and here are the photons here. And this is a more complicated decay. And you see, people spent a long time simulating this, trying to understand it, so that when we finally get the data, we might actually be able to discover it. So the Higgs, actually, is one of those things that most people think has a good chance of existing. And if it doesn't exist, then that's news in itself, because the whole theory depends on this now. Now, the next thing I'd like to talk about is this thing of unifying forces. Um, Einstein spent his latter years trying to unify all the forces of nature. He failed, and we still haven't done it, so it's a pretty tall order. And here you see the different forces, magnetism, electricity, the weak force, the nuclear force, and gravity. Now, some of these have been unified. We know that magnetism and electricity are the same thing. It's what we call electromagnetism. This is Maxwell's equations. And in fact, there's a quantum version of electromagnetism uh, discovered by Richard Feynman. This is called quantum electrodynamics, QED. The weak force has actually been combined with the electromagnetic force into something called the electroweak force. And the nuclear force also is pretty well understood. There's a quantum theory called QCD, quantum chromodynamics, and that these can be unified at this sort of scale, at this sort of energy. Now, the big puzzle is gravity, because gravity, Newton and all these people thought they understood Galileo, Kepler, thought they understood gravity. And we have that sort of Newtonian version of gravity. We also have Einstein's version. (coughs) But gravity, as it's predicted, will not be unified until way up here. Now, these are what are called the Planck units. When the universe was created, we have these wonderful units to sort of describe the situation close to the Big Bang. So one Planck length is very short, 10 to the minus 35 metres. In terms of time, 10 to the minus 44. In terms of energy, huge amount of energy. And in terms of temperature. So these Planck units are right up here. They're only achievable at the Big Bang. <coughs> now, the whole point of, of, of a lot of particle physics, it's trying to unify all these forces. It's thought they're all one force. And one of the problems is that both the quantum and gravitational effects become important. And we don't have a quantum theory of gravity. There is no quantum theory of gravity. And even if we did, the particle, the exchange particle, the graviton, has not been discovered. So, very little, we know very little about gravity, it turns out. In fact, it gets worse, because you've tried to develop these theories, they become what's called non renormalizable. That's just a fancy word for saying they're full of infinities. They blow up, they diverge. And that's because the gravitons, actually, if they exist, interact with one another. Nobody's had a way of dealing with this until recently. And one of the things that helps the quantum theory of gravity is this thing called supersymmetry, or SUSY for short. Now, when I talk to you about particles, one property I didn't mention is that most particles have something called spin. There's a quantum mechanical property, and they spin. And there's two sorts of particles. Matter particles have a half unit of spin, and they're called fermions doesn't matter about the name, but they have a half unit. Force particles have integer units of spin. So a spin of one or two or three. And they're called bosons. That's why the Higgs boson is called the Higgs boson, because it have a spin of, of zero. <coughs> now, in supersymmetry, every particle that exists has a heavier shadow partner. And each force particle has a matter particle, and each matter particle has a force particle associated with it. So for instance, the electron, a supersymmetric particle equivalent to the electron is called the selectron. It gets worse actually. The quark is called the squark, And there's a really good one. The W is the Y now, you know. And likewise with the graviton, there's a gravitino. So there's a whole new family of particles. Oops, sorry. Shown here. Now why haven't we seen these? It's because they're very heavy and we haven't had enough energy to create them so far. And it's thought that the LHC might, just might, be able to create them. And supersymmetry helps in the theory because the gravitino, this thing here, helps to cancel some of those nasty infinities in the theory. just turns out right. That if that exists, some of these infinities disappear. <coughs> so mathematically, it's a good thing. And in fact, this is all tied up with string theory, which I'll discuss briefly in a minute. So what's going to happen is what you should see is instead of just the standard model particles like this, you should see a whole new family like this. And this is related to dark matter because the way these particles decay is they eventually decay to a, a particle at the bottom of the decay chain. And that particle is called the lightest supersymmetric particle, or LSP. And they're supposed to be stable and heavy and should have been around since the Big Bang. So if the universe is full of these LSPs, that could explain some of the missing dark matter. <coughs> and that's similar to the photons in the cosmic microwave background that I showed you earlier. There should be the sea of, of, of supersymmetric particles which are out there. How would, we, how would we see it at LHC? Well, that's a picture. Actually, you, in a sense, you see very little. What you tend to see, this is a simulation, obviously, this is a simulated prediction of a, a pair of supersymmetric particles, and they've decayed here, And there's an awful lot of missing energy. One of the reasons for building this complicated apparatus is that you don't miss anything. But something is missing. There's a lot of missing energy. And that's because the supersymmetric particle, the LSP, is so weakly interacting, we can't detect it. So the signal for supersymmetry will be a large amount of missing energy. We go to all this trouble of building all this apparatus, trying to detect everything... And then the signal for this will be oh, we've added up the beam energies, we've added up all those particles, subtracted them, and there's a large amount of missing energy. And that's telling you that something's missing. You've created something that you can't detect, if you like. There's a bit more to it than that, but that's the basic idea. OK, so moving on, if we want to take this further, um, in the 1960s, there's a gentleman called Veneziano at CERN who came up with this idea of the original idea of string theory. This got developed through the 1970s and 80s by Mike Green, uh, who's at Cambridge these days, and John Schwartz. And they said, oh, this is all wrong. You're looking at particles. If you go deep enough, you'll see something called strings. So instead of the fundamental component of matter being a particle, it's something like this, a piece of string. Problem is, look how small they are. The quarks are 10 to the minus 18 metres. This is, you know... This is really in the realms of the quantum world. And the idea is that, whereas we talk about particles, what we should really think of is these strings vibrating. And depending on how they vibrate, it gives you a different particle. That's string theory in a nutshell. That's about all I understand about it, to be quite honest. (laughs) Uh, But it's tied up with all this thing about extra dimensions, which again, if you read a lot of science fiction, you come across extra dimensions a lot, don't you? Well, it's an old idea. Two gentlemen at the beginning of the 20th century were around with all the famous people at that time, and they've already suggested extra dimensions. And Theodore Kaluza suggested that the universe has more than three dimensions. It's just that we can't see the other ones. They're curled up on themselves. They're so tiny that they're curled up. So though you can see my finger here. You actually can't see that it's cylindrical. If you... There's an extra dimension that you can't see, and he said that these extra dimensions uh, that are curled up. And Oscar Klein actually did the calculation and said they'd be really small, 10 to the minus 35 meters, It's all sort of the same size as these strings, remember? <clears throat> so this became this idea of curled up small dimensions is actually known as Kaluza-Klein theory. It's been around for years. If you read New scientists, you keep reading about extra dimensions, but it's actually an old thing. And here's a picture of how, obviously, you, you, know, you can look at what I've just said to you. My finger could actually contain an extra dimension, basically. It's just that the dimensions are curled up very, very finely. And this is the best thing I can do about visualising extra dimensions. <coughs> String theory works in something like 11 dimensions. Now, I don't know how that works, to be honest. But mathematically, mathematicians talk about Calabi um, manifolds. This is supposed to be some sort of pictorial representation of 10 or 11-dimensional space. So what you're thinking of is at the quantum level, at these very small distances, that matter really, these strings vibrating in all these weird dimensions. Now, this poses a problem, doesn't it? Because there's no chance we're going to be able to see these, not even with the LHC. If we're really talking about these length scales, 10 to the minus 35, I don't think there's a machine that can be built that can see these. There'll be so many quantum effects that how are we going to actually be able to measure this? how are we going to have the resolution to probe into matter and see these strings? Now, it turns out there is a get-out clause. <coughs> it was actually found very recently in 1998 that gravity, although we talk about gravity, gravity is one of those forces that have not been tested very well. Over huge distances, over the universe, over galaxies, it's been tested between planets. But at short distances, nobody knows if it's a good theory. Amazing as this thing And in 1998, these gentlemen here discovered that no measurements have been made at less than a millimetre. Okay, So we don't know that if you bring two bodies together and could get them closer than a millimetre, we don't know if gravity is actually a good theory at those distances. And the reason, sort of obvious if you think about it, the experiments are very difficult. Because how do you bring two bodies together that closely? It's easy with large bodies, but you've got to get them Got to have these perfectly formed bodies and do the measurements at very short distances. Now, there are experiments that exist and they've gone a bit below the millimetre, the fractions of a millimetre, like tabletop experiments, but they're very difficult to do. And so there are theories that exist now that suggest that gravity might actually be different at these short distances. We've got no, no proof that gravity actually has the same properties as it does over large distances. Now, gravity has this famous inverse square law. falls off as 1 over r squared. But that is not known whether that works at very short distances, only over large distances. So anyway, these theorists leapt on this. So they said, ah, OK. So you can have extra dimensions, and they can be larger than 10 to the minus 35 metres. They can actually be anything from a millimetre downwards. They're larger than a millimetre. We've presumably seen them, maybe. And their idea is that everything we know is actually confined to three dimensions of space, except for gravity. And that's what this is supposed to show. This shows our universe with space and time in three dimensions in what's called a brain. And it shows two particles interacting, let's say a particle collision, and releasing, let's say, a graviton. And the graviton is escaping into one of these extra dimensions and this is supposed to explain why gravity is weak. It's because we don't see all of the power of gravity in our universe. It's Some of it is disappearing into this extra dimension. And it actually gets a little bit better because it turns out that in string theory, gravitons are these closed strings. You see, that is perfectly closed. And they can wander through all dimensions. The other particles are open strings, like an electron or a quark. And they can only be stuck... ...to this three-dimensional brain here. There's sort of some sense to all of this. Uh, So, what does this solve? Well, it means that LHC does have a a chance... ...of probing these extra dimensions for a start-off. Because depending on how many extra dimensions are... ...tells you how far you can probe. Now, if there's one extra dimension... ...the extra dimension is something like the size of the solar system. We would have seen it. If there's two extra dimensions, it's sub-millimeter... If there's something like, I think it's seven electron uh, extra dimensions, then um, it's something like a femtometer, 10 to the minus 15 meters. So we'll be able to see this at the LHC. So we've now got this opportunity of looking in this range to see if there are ex- signals for extra dimensions. And it might all be wrong, of course. Maybe string theory is right. It's all down at this. Thing. But there is an opportunity, and that's where extra dimensions comes in. Okay, black holes. I don't want to say too much about those, but somebody's bound to ask. Um, Black holes are a direct classical prediction, if you like, of Einstein's theory. And in particular, there's this thing here. This is called the Schwarzschild radius. And all this is saying is that if you compress an object enough below a certain radius, it will become a black hole. Now, you could compress the sun. Now, the radius of the sun is 700,000 kilometres... If you compress it to 3 kilometres, a radius of 3 kilometres, you would create a black hole. The Earth is something like 6500 half thousand kilometres. If you compress it to the size of a peanut, 9 millimetres, that would create a black hole. It's the same with quarks. You can do this with anything, if you like. You can do, this, you can do the calculation. If you take a quark pair, which is roughly this size, and compress them to this, you'll get what's called a black hole. Now, I don't know about you. I think the chances of getting down to here are pretty remote, to be honest. But there is a theory... And again, I show some of the authors, 2001, black holes at the Large Hadron Collider. And I think I've got a simulation of one. It would look like something like that. You, if you can do it, and there are great doubts whether you ever could, you create this black hole, it would be a mini black hole, it would be tiny, absolutely tiny, and it would evaporate by what's called Hawking radiation. All that means is it decays into lots of other particles. Stephen Hawking dis- discovered this thing, that black holes can radiate. So it would look something like this. But this is highly speculative. And this is right on the boundary of, of what's likely. OK, so coming to the end now. So that's mainly those general purpose experiments are looking for the Higgs boson and supersymmetry. If they're very lucky, they might find extra dimensions. <coughs> Some of the more specialist experiments are looking for where's the missing antimatter. If we believe the Big Bang, we had a Big Bang, we created particles and antiparticles. They would have annihilated, surely, if we created equal equal numbers of them, we would end ended up with nothing. Why do we exist? Now, the answer is that there's some asymmetry between the matter and the antimatter. So you notice you've got more, more matter here than antimatter. Something's happened. So they all annihilate, and you get a lot of energy, which we see in the cosmic microwave background, and you end up with just a little bit of matter left over. That's us. So that's the theory. Okay? In fact, if you look in the universe, the, the number of protons to the number of photons is one in a billion. So this sort of hangs together, that somehow there was this asymmetry between matter and antimatter. It's annihilated, and you've got a bit left over. And you can measure these asymmetries. Now if you look, and people have been looking for the last 50 years, you only see an asymmetry in two places. OK, so this... OK. I should have explained that the standard model also includes antiparticles. These bars over the top of particles just means it's the antiparticle equivalent of these, so an electron for instance there's a bar over the top and it's a positron and this year's Nobel Prize or last year's Nobel Prize was actually given for, this was the one of the PR quotations we're all the children of broken symmetry the only reason we exist is because some symmetry was broken and we end up with a certain amount of matter and that's us and the only two places where we've seen this asymmetry is in two sorts of particles a K meson and a B meson 1964 and 2001. And you can measure these asymmetries and the problem is the standard model is too good. It agrees and it predicts these asymmetries. And that is not enough to explain the missing antimatter in the universe. It's about a billion times out. So we need to carry on looking for extra asymmetries, if this is the true theory, because the theory might be wrong. That's the experiment that will look for the missing antimatter, especially. This is the LHC, LHCB experiment. I work on this. And this will produce a 1,000 million of these B mesons every year. So we can really test this idea of, of these asymmetries. Something else that we'll produce at the LHC, t- I've talked about colliding protons. In fact, it will also collide other things. It can collide lead, lead ions. Now, lead has an atomic weight of 208. A huge number of protons and neutrons against a huge number of protons and neutrons. Accelerated to a high energies and compressed. And you get what's called... If you're lucky, a quark gluon plasma. it's supposed to be the matter that existed very, very close to the start of the Big Bang. And you can actually get free quarks here for a brief moment of time. It's like a liquid full of quarks. Now, in normal matter, we can't see these quarks. But there's some hopes that we'll see this quark gluon plasma at the LHC. In fact, it's sort of been discovered already, And that's why, because it's been done at another accelerator, and this is gliding gold on gold. So, atoms of gold, colliding with atoms of gold. And look at the huge number of uh, of particles you create. And that's at the Red Holistic Heavy Iron Collider in Brookhaven. So, the thing at the LHC will look something like that. It's at far worse, far more complex. So, why is this important? Well, like I said, this quark ground plasma really was a state of matter supposed to exist just after the Big Bang. It's only after that that we got nucleons, nuclei, atoms... And things developed into the world we see today. And they're also important in neutron stars. Neutron stars are supposed to have quark gluon plasma deep inside because neutron stars are very dense. So it's postulated that they exist there as well. And that's the experiment. That's the picture of the experiment that we'll look at. This quark gluon plasma. It's not. This is when the. This is a big magnet. Look at this huge magnet here. It's Not got the detectors in the middle. But. And That's called the Alice experiment. Okay, so to come to the end of my talk, um, the LHC should have been up and running. Uh, This, um, you know, certainly by now. um, Last year, there was a great fanfare. The machine was commissioned, and it worked very well for a few days, but then there was an incident, as you might well be aware. what actually happened was that uh, there was a bad electrical connection, and because it's a superconducting machine, once you get a resistance in the machine, it starts to quench, the magnets start to quench and have to release their energy. There are all sorts of safety systems that did kick in, but they weren't quite good enough. And you can see the damage done to the magnets. These are the connections between two magnets and here. And this was inside the, the tunnel. And there's lots of black stuff around after, after the incident. And what happened is uh, everything worked. And there's a certain amount of... The, because it's a superconducting machine, there's lots of helium there. And the helium has to boil off and evaporate. And there were pressure relief valves around the ring, but they weren't quite good enough. So this helium actually caused a lot of this damage. The fact that this helium had to go somewhere, like a sonic, sonic boom going around the accelerator. It had to go somewhere under great force, and the valves weren't good enough, so it caused a lot of damage. So this has been repaired. And the current schedule for the LHC, uh, this only came out uh, last week. There's a workshop in Chamonix in France where... All the possibilities and all the options are discussed. And the current plan now is to actually start almost a year later. The first beams will be the end of this, September this year. Collisions late October. Now, normally what happens is the accelerator shuts down for the winter to save energy because fuel uh, energy costs are high. It will actually start operating then for a full year from October. So trying to make up for lost time, basically. Okay, there will be a break for Christmas, I think, but... Uh, um, so that's, that's the situation, and remember, one of the problems with the machine, because it's superconducting, you have to cool the whole ring, all this ring, to this temperature. And you can see here, some of them are a bit red and a bit blue at the moment. There's only one at the right temperature. So the whole ring has to be cooled down. It takes six weeks to cool down to begin with. So technically, this is a huge challenge, and we shouldn't perhaps be too surprised that when we first start using it and get, you know, getting used to the conditions, we have a few problems. And I think that's it. Thank you very much.